this week on the Back Table Podcast. I don't know if you do this. I feel like this was a trick like Chris Barron from Vanderbilt taught me. I use my micropuncture needle to do the anesthetizing. So one, you can get more lidocaine in there and the, like quicker rather than using like a 25 gauge needle. And also like, so I'll take that micropuncture needle and I'll just have one stick site where I'm putting all the lidocaine and I use that stick site to do where my incision's going to be. I'll I'll turn it inferiorly and direct it to where it's going to catch the port pocket. And then I turn it superiorly. So all in the same like needle and like all the same stick. And then I turn it superiorly and like I'll put it all the way up by the clavicle. And then I'll, I'll lay lidocaine all along that track where I'm going to be tunneling. It's just kind of an economy of movement to where you can save yourself a little bit of yeah. time rather than sticking the patient in four different spots and putting down lidocaine. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back to Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Simple innovations to the venous seal closure system plus new techniques mean greater impact for you and your practice. Experience greater efficiencies, greater control, and greater ease of use with the enhanced venous seal closure system. Learn more by visiting medtronic.com impact. This is Aaron Fritz as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our special guest today, good friend, Dr. Chris Beck. Welcome, Chris. Thank you. I don't know about special guest. I feel like just like routine guest feels more appropriate. <laughs> special to have our host as guest. Okay, that's fair. Sure. So today, uh, I thought it'd be fun to talk about Mediport's, Mediport placement. Since you and I love to talk about these kind of low-hanging fruit topics that, that are high volume, definitely bread and butter cases for the in-wrench radiologist and uh, something that even as a resident got to do a lot of, you know, um, I, I remember just, uh, I was lucky in that the community hospital where I did a lot of my IR rotations at the, the, the IR guys there, let us, let, those who were interested, let us do a good amount of Mediports. And so I always found it's a great, great kind of starter case other than, you know, pick lines, but a great venous access case to start with. You, you learn how to do a cut down. And so I, I wanted to go over basically for the uninitiated, maybe for trainees out there, but also, you know, young IRs out there who might learn something, you know, a new trick. Uh, and, and also a little bit of discussion about how we do things differently, right? Because everybody has, uh, does things differently. Some people like to throw their many ports in really fast and others like to take more time. And we can kind of talk about the pros and cons of those different approaches. So Chris, you want to start with kind of talking about in your practice, what are the most common indications why you get these Mediports, where they come from? Yes. So by far and away, most common indication is malignancy. And so we're putting these in for long-term venous access for chemotherapy. By far and away, that's like the large majority of our cases. Every now and then we'll get a sickle cell patient, but for 99.9%, it's all onc patients. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I guess uh, the other cases are people for whatever reason, are hard sticks. People are getting, you know, frequent blood transfusions, stuff like that. Uh, but yeah, you're right. For the most part, it's for malignancy. Any contraindications to getting a Mediport place where you might, you know, you might say, ah, this patient should probably get a pick line or some other kind of access uh, before a Mediport. Yeah, for me, the most common contraindication that like comes up in actually in my practice is if I suspect there's like, a current infection. So if for some reason they present as an outpatient, 
And for whatever reason, they describe um, an active infection or they're on antibiotics currently, or they've just sort of started on a round of antibiotics. Um, if they can wait, I'll reschedule them. If not, like if they have chemotherapy like happening that afternoon or, or later that week, then I'll place a pick, let them finish out their antibiotic regimen, and then bring them back and put in the port. I've seen some other, I don't know if they're contraindications, but it certainly makes life a little bit more difficult um, is if someone's had like uh, just there's no place to put the port. Like I think maybe you've probably seen some patients who have like terrible radiation burns to their chest. And so you have to get a little bit more creative about where you put the port that can come up mastectomy patients. Although I, I still think it's, it's reasonable to like find an area to put the port, but that can present a challenge. And then as far as, I think one of the things that gets put in for anticoagulation is like bleeding diastasis, but um, I've never not put in a port because I was worried that they were going to bleed out after or, or during the port. I don't know about you. Yeah, the coags, I mean, I definitely like them to be off of, you know, you know, you know, I follow SAR anticoagulation guidelines, but, you know, we, we'd standard, standard would be the check, the INR, you know, and uh, PT, PTT. I, ideally, INR is less than 2.0 for me um, because what I've seen happen before, this actually happened in fellowship is, Somebody's on Plavix and aspirin and uh, you put the port in and they come back with a hematoma in the port pocket. And I've seen that happen and it can, you know, it can get messy uh, where then you're like, the patient comes back, they get a big Goomba over their chest and, you know, you're like, okay, what do we do now? Do we take this port out? Or we try and get this hematoma to settle down um, and the hematoma can get infected. So I... I, I'm kind of fortunate. I saw that early on in fellowship. And, and so since then I've been kind of, I've been pretty strict about making sure that they're off anticoags ahead of time and also just checking the, the coags. So, so do you, uh, do, you take, do you routinely check coags before all ports? Okay. Yeah. So that, that's maybe where I, I differ. I, I stopped checking coags with poor placements and, you know, it, it Unless yeah, they have a history so, so, of being on something that I think they're going to, you know, if they have like, if they're on Coumadin for whatever reason and they haven't held it or right. they've only held it for one day, then yeah, of course I'll check it. If I have any reason to think that they're going to be coagulopathic, but otherwise routine patient, routine onc, um, I'm just going to push ahead without knowing like the INR or the PT. Yeah. And, you know, like you said, I mean, some of these, they're cancer patients, so they can have coagulopathies. Granted, those are more thrombogenic, mm-hmm. but uh, coagulopathies, but still, I, I like to get an idea, just a baseline. And, it's you know, they're already getting usually lab work, uh, you know, when they come in uh, a CBC and BMP, you know, as part of the outpatient workup at, at, at these hospitals I'm working at. So it, it's usually just part of it. And I, but I am, I am, I definitely check before, you know, I go into the, do the sure. procedure. And then just to take a step back, because you mentioned something about putting a pick line in, and I know that you put in arm ports. Have you ever like had that in mind when you put a pick line in that you already have access and maybe get access a little bit higher where you would put an arm port and just do a transfer from a pick to an arm port? So I've never done that. And I don't even know if it would be a consideration of mine. Um, one, I've never converted a pick to an arm port. And a large majority of the ports I, I put in are just conventional chest wall ports. Um, it's only every now and then if a patient has either it's uh, patient preference, like for some reason they know about an arm port and they think that would be more comfortable for them, or they have some kind of like sometimes mastectomy patients would prefer that, or sometimes like there's radiation burns to the chest. Um, 
So the arm port is really still an outlier for me. And if I am putting in a pick, I'd, I'd probably just still then go and convert it to a chest wall port. But it, like, let's just say there was the theory that I'm putting in a pick and then I'm later going to convert it to an arm port. It's it's still very, like, I don't even know if I'd go through the bother of like keeping that Venus access. I would probably just like take out the pick and then just restick somewhere else. Like rather than like trying to make yeah. my pick placement different than what I normally do. Yeah, and, and that's a good segue into, you know, kind of choosing a side and location. You want to just talk through the, un, for the uninitiated, you know, why we generally go on the rights, what, you know, what vests we're accessing. So I'm like right IJ, right IJ, right IJ, until I have to go on the left. That's how I feel about it. So I really like going on the right. Uh, it's a shorter distance, like your catheter distance will be shorter um, because you're going from right IJ to brachiocephalic to SVC. Uh, you know, it's just a longer distance to go from the left. I don't know how else to explain it better for the the trainees, but as you start to put in more and more catheters, I mean, I'm not saying it's a big hurdle to overcome because certainly it's like surmountable, but right IJ makes everything easier. Yeah, recently I had a case where I had a Mediport on my schedule. I go up to the lab, you know, typical day, kind of busy running around. Okay, nice Mediport, you know, think it's going to, you know, tip shot case, you know, I come in, I got, I talked to the patient, they had already prepped the patient out because they were, they were waiting. And so I'm talking to them under the drape and I'm talking about, Hey, you know, what kind of cancer do you have? Oh, it's breast cancer. Okay. Where's it at? Oh, it's on the right side. Okay. You know, where on the right side? Oh, just upper you know, outer quadrant, <laughs> just under my clavicle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right where I'm going to put the Mediport. And I was like, okay, well, that this isn't going to work guys, you know? And so that, so after that happened and, you know, this is in a lab that I'm not that very frequently, but I say, look, I got to talk to these patients before you prep them out because, or you guys have to ask, Hey, where's your cancer at? You know, what are you being, how are you being treated? I think it's very important to talk to the patient beforehand and be clear about what they're being treated for, where that treatment is. She was going to undergo a lumpectomy and radiation you know, shortly thereafter. And so I was like, well, I'm not putting a port right in that, that area, you know? Um, and so you have to be careful about that. And of course, then, then I had to go on the left. Yeah. And I think it's, it's still uh, fine to go on the left, but you know, like if yeah. you're going to have, like, if you have a patient with breast cancer on the, you know, the right side, then, and you know, that they're going to get radiation or mastectomy. Um, a lot of them, by the time they get to me, have already had the mastectomy and then lung cancer, like high lung cancers, like at the, you know, like at, yeah, yeah, towards the apex. Uh, you know, you want to avoid there because it may end up in the radiation field. And I'm trying to think of what else, like, like it seems like lung cancer and breast cancer are the ones that routinely come up for me. Um, another reason that I like going right side, and I don't know if you have this issue or it's not, it's kind of a non issue. And it, it seems like small to complain about it. But whenever I tunnel, I'm more comfortable tunneling with my right arm. And so, yeah. And, and so, like, tunneling on the left side, you're using your left hand, which it's still very doable, but, you know, everything for me is just more comfortable on the right. Yeah, it's tricky. And then the other thing is, you know, what, and we're going to get into technique in a sec, but I just want to talk about limitations of left-sided ports for a sec, is once you get your wire down and you get that peel-away sheet down, mm -hmm. some t depending on the length, sometimes it can be a little bit short, yep. right? And so when you go to put your catheter down, it might pop into the azagus, uh, right? For sure. Um, and, and then it can be really hard to get out. Uh, or it just doesn't quite make the length or I even see them pop up into the, the right brachycephalic, right? Yeah. yeah. Brachycephalic vein. So those are, 
those are things that, you know, kind of are annoying about going from the left. Um, and so, but, uh, anything else on that note before we jump into, uh, we were kind of talked about arm ports. Yeah, we can, uh, let's, uh, let's just walk through a standard place. Yeah, sure. I actually wrote some notes on standard placement just so I didn't leave anything out. So for me, um, I try and do the same thing every single time. So like if, and we can just pretend it's a right IG port, although I don't know if the steps are any different from my left side. So uh, right chest wall port. So I uh, always use ultrasound guidance to access the IJ. If for some reason the IJ is out, I don't have a problem doing an EJ. That would be a little unusual with oncology patients, but you know, it can happen. Um, so Lido, um, and I lay down a lot of lidocaine. Um, I don't know about you, but I am not shy about putting in like a lot of lidocaine. Like that, that's one of my pet peeves when like I, we don't have enough lidocaine on the table. I like a lot of lidocaine for ports. Um, so a lot of lidocaine, dermatotomy with the 11 blade, IJ access with a micropuncture. Um, one of the things I do for micro or for access in the vein, and I, this was a Vanderbilt thing that someone showed me, I think it was from Bream, is that he always like coaxed me to like bring the vein to like the far end of the ultrasound image. So like that way you had a really short throw. Like, I mean, I, you know, like whatever you think of the picture, you think of the, like the, the vein right in the middle, but I access in the traverse plane so where I see the whole needle along the length, but like I just bring the needle to the very edge. So if you're looking at the ultrasound screen to the left edge, so it's a real short throw. And I don't know what that really does other than that, like it just creates like less skin and everything to tunnel through or to... Yeah, it's less tissue to tunnel through. I mean, you know, and sometimes if they've had any kind of Lyme or scar scar there and, and, you know, just to step back to the lidocaine thing, I mean, you, nine times out of 10, when patient's going to hurt during a Medipore placement, it's when you're putting that sheet, yes. when you're dilating and putting that sheet mm-hmm. in at the dermatotomy site, that's where they hurt. They don't even hurt really in the, when you're putting the, 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 when you're creating the pocket. Um, but yeah, so I think it's, like you said, it's important to put a lot of lidocaine down there. And it's funny, the, the whole, I, I do it subconsciously as well. And I guess maybe that's where I got it. Maybe from Bream as well as with the whole getting, getting that, um, that vein right on the edge mm-hmm. of the ultrasound screen so that you're popping right down into yeah. it and not having this big long needle. No, no, you don't want to like create a long throw. That's it. And plus it also yeah. on the back end, it, for whatever reason, I feel like it creates like a nice curve whenever you do like a nice short access. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I feel like Breen must have beat it into us because that's where I get it. And nice and low. Oh yeah, yeah. Access. Uh, no, 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 no. That's yeah. like, that's amateur hour, man. I, I like, I mean, I also read diagnostics and whenever I read, uh, like, you know, port placement and then I see like the access, like, looks like they access someone like near the mandible. Um, it's just like makes you cringe, but yeah. So like right above the clavicle and then angled down. I mean, a, a friend of mine jokes yeah. that he angles at the confluence of like the subclavian and the IJ, <laughs> but yeah, I'm, I'm all about a low IJ stick. So, all right. So then, so access, uh, access micropuncture set. Um, I will, uh, do an intravascular measurement. I don't know if you do this, but I basically have the wire, the micropuncture sheet in, and then I put the wire exactly where I want it, like where I want to land my port uh, catheter. And then I pull that wire back and create like an intravascular measurement. Um, Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So, and I think, I don't know if that was a Vanderbilt thing too, but I, um, I, I learned, uh, Jim McElmary taught me that technique um, where to, to basically measure the wire yeah. 
and then you use that uh, to measure your your catheter. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you about something I picked up later that's a little bit different where I stopped doing that. But yeah, I used to do that for a long yeah. time. I mean, so I so I just use the wire to like measure the intravascular length every now and then. Like if yeah, like sometimes I forget, and then you know, I don't have any problem laying the port down on somebody just to like give yourself an estimate, you know. And then you just have like the port external to the patient, and you just put it over where you want, and then I'll snip there. Um, but a lot of times I just do an intravascular measurement. If I am measuring from the left, like, and I have like that intravascular measurement, I usually add two centimeters for like a fudge factor. Um, I've, I've just found that like adding those, whenever I think about like ports that you have to revise, like I can think of a lot of ports that I've revised because they were too short. I just can't think of any that I've ever revised because they were too long. Yeah. yeah. So, all right. So I've, I've got that little wire measurement. So I know my intravascular length. Then I'll uh, take that wire out. And so it's on the back table and, you know, I got like a little uh, measurement tool. Um, and then I'll go from micropuncture sheath with like a Rosen or a Benson wire, whatever basically is on the field. And then I'll always put that in the IVC. Uh, once I put that in the IVC, I'll take a picture. That's also something that's kind of beat into me every time I take a picture. And it's just to prove that you're Venus in uh, positioning. Yeah. Right. So once I'm there, I've got the wire in. Sometimes I'll put like a, a little cap on it, like a, a flow switch, but a lot of times uh, the wire will keep it from back bleeding. And so then I just move on to pocket creation. So I usually do about two or three finger breaths below the uh, clavicle. So wait, back yeah. up for a sec. Did, do you put the sheath in first or what do you have in while you're making the port? Oh, so I don't, I don't uh, put the sheath in usually. Like I'll um, keep that micropuncture. To peel away. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So just, uh, and I'm just going to compare to the way I do it. I, you just keep the micropuncture in with the wire in, or do you, you do put, you put a syringe on the back of the micropuncture? The micropuncture with the wire in. So you keep the wire in while you're doing your, uh, while you're doing your yeah. pocket. What do you okay. do? So I, that having the wire in always made me nervous that like, you know, they're going to take a big inhalation and the wire's going to suck right in or so, you know, that the wire's going to touch something. So I always get the wire out and I used to put a little syringe on the back, but then sometimes that micropuncture would get kind of jammed yeah. up when I was trying, when you're tunneling. When I was trying to mm -hmm. tunnel. So then what I'd start doing is I would just get my wire down and I would just um, dilate, put my peel way in and take every, you know, take the dilator of the peel way out because the peel way has Yeah, the peel way's got a valve on it. And and so I just have the peel wave sheath in the IJ and, um, and then I make my pot. I think that's fine too. I mean, I, I don't see any problem with that. Yeah. Uh, for whatever reason, I, I think I just do this the same way. Yeah. It's just cause that's the way. Yeah. Saying. I, I mean, I, I've kind of changed it up and I just feel like then I know I have access and it's just, and it's already dilated and everything. You don't worry about them like it's taking another big breath in and then all of a sudden sucking through that peel away? The valve is there. I don't know, but is it like, I mean, I've never like had 100% that, that valve? Yeah, but it's not the same as like a dialysis peel away. It's a, it's smaller. It's what, eight French, nine French? Actually, I don't even know what the size of it is, but it must be at least eight French, right? Yeah, I think, I think it's a nine. Um, so anyway, that, I just, a small difference, you know, could, yeah, the, no there's no better way. It's just the way I yeah, do it. I agree. So at this point, so I have wire in and the, the micropuncture outer sheath in. And so then I do the pocket creation. Um, the only thing I'll say 
Well, I'll say a couple of things about the pocket. So I'm, I usually try and stay like two finger breaths below the clavicle. I make sure that the incision that I make, so it's not with the 11 blade. I'll usually have a 15 blade on the table. I try and make like one. I try and know how big the port reservoir is. So I'll have an idea of what we're putting in ahead of time. And I don't actually mark it out, but I just kind of make a mental note, like how much, you know, cut, like, cause I don't like the incision to be so large that, you know, it leaves me more time to, to sew up on the back end, but I want it nice and snug, but also like, you know, you got to have it big enough to where the, the reservoir will actually go through it. And I like to make one cut. And so it's like one firm cut. I remember it when I was in training, I was a little bit ginger about making that first incision. You know, you wouldn't take it all the way through the sub-Q layer. Um, and then once I've made that one cut, I just dissect straight down to the chest wall. And then once I dissect down, I'll just find a plane with my finger. And then everything else I do is blunt dissection with my finger. And so if I run into like a little sinew, I'll just pop it with my finger. And then I just kind of push inferiorly along the chest wall. And I try and keep my port pockets uh, pretty tight. I'm sure we'll mention like whether or not we sew down or uh, uh, suture in the port, but I like to have like a real tight port pocket in basically the the lateral and medial dimension. Like I don't, like there can be a little play up and down, but I do like the the port pocket to be pretty tight around the reservoir. Anything to say, anything to comment about the port pocket? Because I feel like that is a no, thing in and of itself. Yeah, I'm a minimalist when it comes to the incision. So I, I try and, you know, I would say my incisions are about an inch and a half, uh, just under two maybe inches um, in length. And then that way, you know, and we'll talk about which ports we like and for what reasons, but, you know, and I'll, I'll test it. You know, I'll keep, I'll take the port and I'll, I'll keep trying to see if I can fit it in there because I want a nice snug pocket and that's why I don't tie them down. It's because I create a nice snug mm -hmm. pocket so that they're not flipping around in there. Yeah. But yeah, that's pretty, yeah, that's pretty much the same, same way I do. Lots of Lido. Obviously you don't want the patient to be feeling that, that they might feel that blunt dissection, but that's why, like you said, pump lots of Lido mm -hmm. in there. Um, but that's pretty much Yeah. And actually that's one of the ways, you know, ports are, are something like you do so frequently that there's some ways to like save yourself some time. And one of the things I'll do whenever I'm anesthetizing the chest wall for the port is I'll, I'll make a little skin wheel. So, uh, like a, a linear skin wheel. So I have an idea of how long I want my incision to be. And then also I'm using, I don't know if you do this. I feel like this was a trick like Chris Barron from Vanderbilt taught me. I use my micropuncture needle to do the anesthetizing. So one, you can get more lidocaine in there and the like quicker rather than using like a 25 gauge needle. And also like, so I'll take that micropuncture needle and I'll just have one stick site where I'm putting all the lidocaine and I use that stick site to do where my incision's going to be. I'll, I'll turn it inferiorly and direct it to where it's going to catch the port pocket. And then I turn it superiorly so all in the same like needle and like all the same stick and then i turn it superiorly and like i'll put it all the way up by the clavicle and then i'll i'll lay lidocaine um all along that track where i'm going to be tunneling and it's just like it's just right. to me that's just like one way you can save yourself it's just kind of an economy of movement to where you can save yourself a little bit of yeah. time rather than sticking the patient in four different spots and putting down lidocaine yeah Definitely minimizing sticks, keeping it superficial so it's just in the mm -hmm. skin along where your tunnel yeah. would be. One more thing I'll say about the pocket is I definitely, even though like I like a snug pocket, I do like the pocket to go inferiorly enough. Like I don't like, in the end, I, I like the incision to fall right over the port reservoir cap, like where the, the catheter meets the reservoir. 
What I do not like, and, and this is just me, I, I don't know if there's any data behind this, but I don't like the incision to fall on top of the port reservoir. Do you know what I mean? Like it creates more tension there that I want. So I, I, t- I tuck that sure. port reservoir where it's like well below my incision and that way the incisions can, or at least in my opinion, can like remain a little bit like less tension on it because there's not like a bulging port reservoir underneath it. So that's yeah. one of the things I do yeah. with the port pocket. No, I totally agree. Cause when, yeah, when you're stitching and you'll, you'll be able to tell when you're, when you're stitching it up at the end, it's how much tension you have. And sometimes you might even have to get in there and create mm-hmm. a little bit more space for your port. So it sits further right. back. But like you said, right where that hub is, that's the ideal place for the hub to line up with your incision. So that even when on retrieval, when you're making that incision, it's going over the hub and not over the catheter and not over right. the port. Yep. You know what Agreed. I mean? Yeah. So once the port pocket's in, then I will, you know, ideally the tech is like tested and assembled the port and it's on the tunneler. Um, so then I will tuck in the reservoir into the port pocket and then I'll tunny, uh, tunnel uh, towards the uh, neck incision. I try and have the tunneler where it's like perpendicular to the clavicle i don't i don't even know why i'm kind of a nut about that other than i'm just a particular guy and and i don't know maybe it's a better look for the port i have no idea but i feel like that's also something bream told me to do um and ever since i've just carried that with me but as i'm saying it out loud i'm like i don't know why that's important um so i tunnel with the uh the dial or the the tunneler perpendicular to the clavicle and then i pop out the other end sometimes there can you know one of the things I should mention is that like once you do your dermatotomy at the uh, skin uh, entry site, like up in the neck, I do dissect down. I dissect down to the vein and then I turn that dissection back and I'll direct it towards the clavicle. That I think makes, okay. yeah, that I think makes the tunneling a little bit easier. I do that for like ports and, uh, you know, dialysis caths. That's a good trick because a lot of times it's hard to get through that yeah. hole. And then I end up taking a blade and trying to find my tunneler. Yeah. All, almost always, but that might actually help prevent that. Oh, that for sure will help you prevent that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now, you still have to like push that dilator around till you find that little cleavage plane, but um, it, it makes it a little bit easier. And I can't remember the last time I had to like dissect back or like, you know, cut down on it. That's not true. I can remember the last time. It's not that long ago. <laughs> still comes up. Um, and so then I, then it, so I tunnel, um, I pull the, uh, the catheter kind of taut and then now the reservoir is just sitting in that port pocket. I know the the length of the catheter that's going to be underneath the skin. And, you know, there's a little number that where you can tell, like, how much of the catheter is in the chest wall into the neck. And then, you know, if I can take everyone back to, like, that intravascular length that I had, you know, so if I have eight centimeters from the port reservoir to the skin entry site at the neck... And then I'm like, okay, my intravascular length is 20. So then, you know, I have a 28 centimeter port. That's not actually a good number. It's usually like 15. Like I, I find most ports I cut between 20 and 25. Okay. Yeah. That's about the same as me. 20 to 25 is the magic that, that is def- definitely. The magic yeah. Number. So yeah. Right. There's an expression like measure twice and cut at 23. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so then you have the port catheter sticking out uh you know i don't take off the dilator or i don't take off the tunneler i'll just cut it to the desired length and then chunk that i used to like put a little uh you know do like a a measurement on the external to the patient you know just to make sure it like was in the ballpark but 
I just gave up on that because I feel like my measurements are more on point than like actually just laying the catheter across and, and estimating it. Um, so at that point, I only have the micropuncture sheath then. So then dilate, uh, peel away sheath, and then, you know, stuff the catheter, pull the peel away sheath, and then check and see if it's in the right spot. Yeah, the only difference, you know, like I said, I used to measure with wire, and then I started laying it over because I saw a, a colleague of mine do it. And I was like, oh, let's, let's, let's try that. And I just started seeing where, you know, we were talking about 20 to 25, and almost always it's like 22 to 23. So I just take some curved hemostats. I, you know, I narrow my window on fluoro, and I just want to see that tip you know, I try and align it with where the sheath is, where I can see it. So it's not like an acute right. angle. So I try and align yeah, and almost always it's like 22, 23. And I just cut it right there. And I knock on wood, I haven't been disappointed yet with the, the layover. Approach. There's, yeah, I, I don't think it. there's like a right way and a wrong way on that. I think like the layover approach is perfectly fine. Yeah, I think it's shaved a couple of minutes off my... There's no way it's shaved <laughs> minutes off the procedure time, but yeah, maybe a little bit. Uh, but like, that's the thing about ports, like people always talk about speed of ports and people will tell me like, you know, even the, like the, yeah the people that do ports really quickly and, and they'll say they can do a port in 10 minutes. I mean, that's fantastic, but I don't mind taking 15 minutes on a port or, you know, whatever. If I take 20 minutes on a port, my day is not like based off of the five minute increments that I can save. No, I mean, it, it yeah, by spending the adequate time on a port saves you hours on the back end when they don't come back, right. uh, you know their port exposed because you didn't stitch it up properly or, sure. you know, it, or it's just non-functioning. Yeah. yeah, no, I agree. I, it's funny. Cause I, I remember we had like little competition at Vanderbilt about, you know, speediest ports and mm -hmm. stuff like that. And it's, you know, whatever. That's we had the, we had the same thing in fellowship for some reason. Like we, we would uh, like try and like who, who could put in the port the fastest, but you know, and, and I, I think there's some value to that. I mean, I think there is, like, I, I like the economy of motion. Like, I like being very efficient with every movement that I make. Like, make it very intentional. Everything's got a reason behind yeah. it. You know, you cut out all the fluff of the things that you're doing with, like, in terms of, like, oh, I, now I have to dab this little piece of blood off. Like, I like being very efficient with my procedures. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I... You're not... Tiny. No, I mean, like, that's, that's like, and, things you do when you're younger. Yeah. And on the other side, you're not taking two hours. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's right more important yeah, no no it doesn't you know. take it doesn't take me all that long to put in the port and then i guess like closure of ports i think that can vary a lot between operators like how you close yeah yeah i'm interested to see how you do it but i will so i think now at this point oh i'll also one of the things i do is i'll usually test the port before i close it i think most people do that just to make sure that you have a good functioning port and so i'll do withdrawal then i'll flush in and then i'll usually heparinize it and then after that, I'll close up. I'll do uh, 3.0 in the uh, uh, the deep layer. And then I'll try and bring that uh, pretty close to superficial. Um, and a lot of times, like the way I'll, I'll make that throw, I can really like bring some pretty close apposition to like the skin. And then if I, if I can, then I'll just go ahead and glue the skin after I've done like uh, maybe three or four interrupted uh, 3.0 vicrals. And if I can, then I'll just glue the rest of the incision. And if I can't, I'll do a, a running uh, 4.0 ethylon uh, sub-Q layer to close. Yeah, I, I do mine the exact same every time. I do um, one 3.0 Vicryl interrupted mm -hmm. uh, to close up the deep layer. And usually by that time, it's so well-affixed that I could actually glue if I wanted to. 
but I still do a running uh, uninterrupted 4.0 to close it. And then I do different bond over yeah. top. And that for whatever reason has, I mean, since Jim, the day Jim McElmurray taught me how to do that, that's never changed. I do it the same every time. And then I do uh, a little bit of glue at the top. Yeah, yeah, glue the neck. It's usually that incision. Yeah, that's like a just tight yeah. little incision. Yeah. Can you uh, do you still have Dermabond so, now? Like we've moved on to like these uh, generics of Dermabond that are not quite as good as Dermabond, but still work. I mean, still now I just call everything glue. Yeah, there's something Liquid Band by McKesson. I have some no, of here. I do, here. I do awesome. skin to fix. Skin to fix I, is I, what we have. I stitched uh, my my seven year old uh, sliced his knee open the other day, and my wife was like. We gotta take one to the ER. How to get stitches? Now, like, nope. And I grabbed some derm, uh, some dermabond and glued it. Now, like, that's good. great. That's good. It's always nice to have like yeah. one or two dermabonds laying around. Yeah, I think everyone yeah. does. So, uh, one thing I will say about gluing it up is, like, whenever I'm gluing it up, I kind of take a little bit of care. I don't like to get glue in the in the wound. Like, you want to make sure like the skin is opposed. Like, you really are looking for like a yeah. you know tension free um incision and so i'll make sure the skin is nicely opposed right. and then glue it up so actually take a little bit of care with the incision because you know for all we make of like you know venous access and and our, our like wiring catheter skills like i think like when you're going to have problems with the port it, you know a lot of it can come from your incision so i take a little bit of care with that okay so we already talked about why we don't suture in place did we talk about why we don't right. suture them in place well Briefly, I mean, you make a snug pocket, I make a snug pocket. I feel like it's not, you know, knock on wood, I've never had that, you know, a case where a port flipped. And I think that's because I make a snug pocket. Now, people who actually are religious about suturing their ports in place, and th I think those are fewer and far between. I, uh, it's rare to meet somebody who's like, no, I do it every time. I, I think that they're making a huge pocket. Um, uh, just having seen some of those people and, you know, creating their, uh, their ports or their pockets. Now for me, it saves time on the back end when you're going to retrieve that port and you don't have to search for the sutures, you know, for somebody's putting like mm -hmm. printing in. There was a time when actually, when I wasn't using the clear views, the, the, um, clear view is also is a silicone body. So you can stitch it from anywhere. Oh, nice. So, so you can just grab a hold of it. Doesn't have, you can just grab a hold of it. You don't have little holes, right? But occasionally I'll put a port in like an Andrew Dynamics port or a, or a different type of port and it'll have those little holes. And what so I would do sometimes, especially if it was like uh, a, uh, somebody with like large body happiness, for example, and you are a little bit afraid of, you know, maybe that port flipping, you know, if, the, if you're just placing it in subcutaneous tissue because they have so much subcutaneous mm -hmm. tissue uh, fat that you can't really get down to the muscle, you know, muscle sure. layer. So you want it to be superficial enough where people can access it. And that's when it's prone to flip, yep. right? When it's just kind of floating in subcutaneous fat. So in those cases, what I'll do is I'll try and uh, put a stitch in, but I would use Vicryl so it's absorbable. And what happens over time is the body will form like its own little sutures. It'll scar into those mm -hmm. holes. And you'll, you'll see that when you retrieve them, right? You'll see like little, little, like, you know, pieces of scar tissue that that kind of fold into those holes and that's the body holding on to it. And so I was doing absorbable suture for a little while, especially for those, I still do for those patients who I feel like they are up prone for flipping, you know, and that's, I don't know, but that's also like once in a blue moon. Otherwise I'm making a nice snug, you know, pocket and, and that's it. 
What about you? Nice snug, nice snug pocket, and that's it. You know, knock on wood, I haven't had any ports flip. And, you know, I have to say that I know of, I mean, maybe they're going to outside institutions to get them fixed, um, but I don't know of any yeah. ports that have flipped that I've put in. And, uh, you know, until I find a couple, I'm probably just going to continue to push on, carry on, keep calm. I will say something like bo- uh, Body Hobbitus did remind me. Um, I... I think like whenever you put these ports in on like someone like with a, a large body habitus, like that's something to keep in mind as far as like where you land your port. Like I, I think I said in the earlier in the podcast that I've, I think most people you, you've probably exchanged or, you know, some people do fiber and sheath uh, strippings. Like it's more common in people who leave their ports too short than too long. And then I think it's something to remember that, you know, when you're doing a patient who's like supine, that's very different from like a patient who's like sitting up and then all that, uh, soft tissue on the chest can pull everything inferiorly and then shorten up your port. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's a good point. So just real quick on... You know, is there is there any worthwhile mentioning subclavian ports? I mean, just don't do it. You know, public service announcement. Don't put... I think it. it's worth mentioning, like, if you are putting in subclavian ports, that's only good for, like, foreign body retrievals and port revisions, as far as I can tell. <laughs> for, to keep up yeah, practice. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's, the only, that's the only thing I've known them to do. Uh, I, I mean, actually, I'm sure a lot of them work fine for a large majority of the time. But, you know, we do uh, port checks and uh, like, you know, I've seen plenty of ports that fracture at the clavicle, uh, uh, what the clavicle rib junction. And then I've done a couple of foreign body retrievals for fractured ports. Yeah, I, I mean, I've never needed to put a subclavian in. I've never had a mentor or colleague or anybody I've ever seen put a subclavian in. Um, that being said, I mean, you know, not to knock our surgery colleagues, but that's sometimes that's just how they train. For sure. And, um, but you know, for us, it, you know, we don't see those complications when you put them in via the IJ. We don't, we don't see them kink. We don't see, you know, them, cl- you know, clot as, as frequently. So that's, that's why we, we don't do it that way. Real quick, um, I mentioned the Bard Clearview. That's probably my preferred port because of the the, um, the design allows for a tighter pocket. It's kind of like an arrowhead uh, look to it. So it kind of, you know, it's not purely round. So when you're putting it into your pocket, it kind of just nicely will, you know, that triangular shape kind of allows it to kind of fit in there nicely. Um, and then this, this, yeah, the silicone body is nice because you can suture from wherever, uh, on the body and, um, yeah. And, and also, you know, it just, people seem to, they seem to be more comfortable with them really, uh, for whatever reason. Yeah. I've, I've gotten that feedback from patients. They're like, you know, when I take them out, I was like, how did you like that port? You know? And they're like, oh yeah, just, I could always feel it. Um, never had any issues with it. So just the feedback I've gotten from hmm. patients is. It's been positive. Um, so yeah, any any ports in particular that you like? I'll basically take whatever we happen to have on the shelf. I'm not particular about it. The Clearview is a nice port. Every now and then if it's a cachectic patient or I am putting in an arm port, I'll use some low, pro, uh, low profile version of a port um, that I think is yeah. nice to have for those uh, cachectic patients or if you're putting in like maybe a non-dimensional yeah. location. Yeah, low profiles are definitely mm-hmm. great um, for skinny and, you know, they're easy to put in and patients rarely have issues with them. Yep. I feel like, okay, let me see. Do you ever do anything like, uh, like I remember for a little while, there was a little bit of discussion whether the 
the three little uh, palpable markers that like go on the, the basically in a triangular fashion around it. People were shaving those off, I think, or maybe cutting those off because they, those were like eroding through skin. Yeah. I never had that problem. And right. uh, I don't I don't do that. And but I don't know if that's like a part of your practice. I never had that okay. issue. I don't like manipulating the port in any way. I, I I don't manipulate the port other than cutting the catheter. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so no, I, I've never done that. And again, knock on wood, I've never had any issues with those eroding through on any, any ports that I've placed or seen um, you know, or that specific type of port. So last thing is, you know, nine times out of 10, the ports are ready to use immediately. Yep. Um, same with you. A lot of times they ask us to leave them access because they're going to get, you know, some sort of infusion. Uh, I'm just careful when I put the place that Huber needle, when it's a fresh incision, I just, you know, not stay away from the glue. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll, pl- I'll put the glue down first, let it dry, and then access it afterwards because I just want to make sure it doesn't upset the incision. What about you? I never leave them accessed. Um yeah, okay. I think that yeah. you just you just tell them to access. Yeah, whatever they get to exactly. there. I mean, yeah. I mean, not that not that we couldn't, but uh, I don't know. Just don't. well, sometimes it's an impatient, and they're going back to the floor, and they're they're like, oh, we're gonna have just leave you know Huber needle in. So that that's probably a, a better discussion that I wanted to bring up. Like, how many of these do you put on inpatients? I never put them in as inpatients. There's just a there's a hospital that I work at where they you know it's a lot of cancer mm-hmm. patients, and they um, a lot of times they're getting the whole workup while mm-hmm. they're there. And they will place them while they're inpatient, which I actually appreciate having had a family member, you know, going through. I now appreciate them getting as much possible done while they can while they're in the hospital because the outpatient, there's so much delay in care in outpatient in the outpatient world right now. And so I have no problem with taking care of stuff while they're inpatient. You know, some people are like, ah, though, you know, send them out and we'll take care of it, you know, as an outpatient. But I think that you know, it, it can delay their care. And so I'd rather just get it done. And so, yeah, we long answer to your question is, yeah, we're, I do a decent amount of inpatient. Ports. That's fair. Uh, at, at one hospital. I'm sure. I would say like our workflow is uh, very much like if they need, I guess if it were like a pure onc patient that they truly just needed it for like if they were going to initiate chemotherapy in-house. But a lot of times, like it, it's not very common for us to get an admit to complete like an oncology workup. And so uh, a lot of times like they really do need venous access and, and what's more appropriate is like for, for our patient population, I'll put in a pick, bridge them to that port as an outpatient and then put it as an outpatient. Um, yeah, as long as they have access to get what they need, you know what I mean? Because yeah. it's it's frustrating when, you know, they're, they're outpatient and they're trying to rush and get stuff done and they can't get, you know, they have poor you know, venous access and, you know, in terms of peripheral access or their vein already shot for whatever reason. So, okay. And then let's just talk quick about, obviously the follow-up is whenever they're done with their treatment, you know, so it's, it's always a happy day to take somebody's port out. They're usually really happy to get it out. And and I like that, that and taking out IVC filters are two really satisfying uh, things. You know, I just, uh, the patients are always happy those days. I, uh, I certainly like, from like the more exciting for the patient or the port removals, but I feel like most of my IVC filter patients, like they neither, they neither care nor really know that their filter is in there. Like it's fully, it's few and far patients that understand that they really want to get it out. For the most part, like taking out that port is um, like, it's, 
an emotional milestone that's marked by the removal of the port. So yeah, yeah that is that is kind of it. It has some gravity to the situation, and like I also like play into that. Like whenever I uh, consenting them, you know, pre procedurally, you know, I congratulate them and make make a thing of it because you know it is a big deal for them, and and we should be making a big deal of it. Um, so yeah, taking out the port's awesome. Yeah, no, you're right. I guess the filter is more satisfying. Oh yeah, for sure. The filter the filter retrieval like totally belongs to like the IR. Uh, yeah, ego yeah. for sure. All right. So just real quick before we finish up, how about potential complications? Um, obviously we talked a decent amount about infection real quick. What do you give an antibiotic? So no, I do not. I do not give an antibiotic. Do you give an antibiotic? It just depends on the hospital protocol. I don't, you know, a lot of times they have it as part of their protocol. And so if it is, I'll just say, sure. You know, if they yeah. already. And it's like a gram of ANSEF or well, a gram of ANSEF. Yeah, it's a gram of ANSEF. Yeah. No, I don't think you know. like you should be too worried about giving a gram yeah. of ANSEF. So, what if they have a penicillin allergy? We still, what do you give? Clinda. Okay. Yeah. So, the recommendations are uh, routine prophylaxis recommended, no from the SAR guidelines. Uh, first choice antibiotic, no consensus. Suggested regimens, one to two grams ANSEF, IV. And then comments, vancomycin recommended for penicillin allergic patients. Okay. Yeah. All right. I stand corrected. All right. I mean, you're really just trying to cover that right. skin flora and then, you know, all right. treat right. what's in between our ears rather than maybe what's on the patient's skin surface, which is fine too. Yeah. I mean, I think like giving a gram or two of ANSEF is, you know, I don't think like if, if you think that's the right way to go, like I, I don't argue with anyone for that kind of stuff. Again, it gets a lot of times it's hot, you know, if it's part of the hospital protocol, I'm not, yeah. I'm yeah. not kind of creating waves or anything like that. And then, uh, yeah, so we talked about infection, you know, knock of wood rarely happens, but it mm-hmm. can happen. Or Actually, what I want to, so like, I think one of the other things that, that can happen is hematoma. And so you can have a yeah. hematoma at your reservoir site. I've, I've never had one at my venous access site. Um, I think the key to that is just like clean venous access. But as far as the port reservoir, you know, I know some, some operators that do this, they'll have like a little bovey on the field. I'd never do mine with a bovey. I don't know if you do. And I don't know if that makes it better or worse, but sometimes I'll use uh, Lido with Epi, which, you know, like I use a lot of lidocaine, so it reduce, reduces how much is like soaked up in the uh, the system. But light, I just do Lido with Epi. And then I think like having also a tight pocket uh, doesn't create like as much of a reservoir for that blood to pool. But I just I just like right. hold pressure really on it. I don't know. I don't have any better ideas than that. Yeah. Lido with Epi is usually uh, what I use. So yeah, again, knocking on wood, other than that case with the patient who was on Plavix, when I was a fellow, I haven't really had any issues with the hematomas forming. If it happened like days later, I would probably just have them do, I would probably have them take a, you know, a course of antibiotics and then um, do warm compresses over the area. Yeah, so that seems like a smart thing to do. So like you could have, I mean, I think like you can have arrhythmias with ports, um, in which case like, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think like, it's good to know going in, like whenever you're trying to go from atrium to IVC, if you have someone who's very sensitive to arrhythmias, I'm less likely to land that port long. Like my landing zone, I don't know about you, is usually high right atrium. Like, so I, I think I leave a little bit more uh, catheter inside patients than most. Um, that's that's my bias. But if for some reason, like if I was like going into the IVC and I noticed that like they were really sensitive to arrhythmias, then I would I might know think to leave that like slightly shorter at the caboatrial junction i think that you know i think that we've probably seen like fractured ports and and um you know ports that crack but i think that's like in the subclavian population 
Vibrant sheets are super common. I think it's just good to keep them flushed. Whenever you see a port, uh, this is one of my favorite tricks. Uh, whenever you see a port that flips into the azagus, like I've had ports referred to me for that. Like, what is your, what do you do to to get that port out? You can try flushing your yeah, card. I think, that, I think that's like, that's what I like about it. Yeah. Like I just like flush it with like a one or a three CC medallion, like really hard. And it just knocks it back out. Yeah. I think it's still always prone to flipping and we probably don't realize how often it's in the azagus, but every now and then like someone's gets stuck kind of in the azagus. Yeah. Well, it was a very thorough discussion of Mediports and port placement. Thank you, Chris, for yep. coming on. And uh, to our listeners, thank you for listening. If you're a new listener, thanks for tuning in. Please click subscribe on uh, whatever platform you're listening on. Also, also, please, you know, rate, review us on iTunes. That always helps. And until next time. All right. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhirter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Anne Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.